1: Before we get into this week's story, a bit of housekeeping. Already Gone is a Michigan and Great Lakes focused podcast with episodes released on the 1st and 15th of each month. You can find Already Gone on Twitter at Pod. find us on Facebook where we have both a page and a discussion group, and you can find us online at our website, www.alreadygonepodcast.com. Special thanks to this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. And now, on with the show. When a loved one goes missing, one of the first things people do is get their face out there. They make up posters and flyers that bear the name and face of the missing person. Then, the flyers are posted and shared in places their loved one might frequent or could have gone to. In June of 2013, The family and friends of 25-year-old Jamie Vaughn Bryant were busy making those flyers, talking to people, making phone call after phone call, and using social media to get the word out about Jamie. They were all over downtown Kalamazoo, around Bronson Hospital, and in the neighborhood that Jamie called home. His friends and family were telling people that Jamie was missing, that he hadn't been seen in days— that he was last seen in the hospital after a health scare. They reminded the community that his mother and siblings love him and miss him, that his family needs to know where he is, that he is safe, that he is coming home. When flyers, social media, and phone calls didn't work, the local news stations ran stories about Jamie's case. But the phone calls and the flyers and the news stories, they didn't help. There was no word from Jamie, no sign of him at all. Now it's 2019, and it's been six long years, and Jamie Von Bryant is still missing. So come with me to a Saturday in June of 2013, when Jamie walked out of the hospital and disappeared, leaving a grieving family in his wake. It was the last Saturday in May of 2013 when Tina Vaughn saw her son Jamie for the last time. She was at a birthday party for her grandson. It was a summer day where the family was together, making it a good day. Everyone was happy and relaxed. But Jamie took Tina aside. He told his mom that he needed her advice. He confided in her that one of his friends was using heroin, and Jamie was worried. He wasn't sure what to do. He wanted to help his friend, but didn't know how. So Tina talked with him. She told him how she would handle the situation with his friend. The conversation seemed to help. Jamie thanked her for the advice. And this would be the last conversation of consequence that she had with her son. It would be another three weeks before she heard from Jamie again. This time it was on a Friday night. June 28, 2013. Jamie called Tina, and he did not sound well. He told his mother that he'd been at the hospital, that he was getting checked out after taking a fall down a flight of stairs. Tina didn't ask how the fall happened, and later some friends would speculate that he'd been drinking, or maybe using drugs that night leading to the fall and the injuries he sustained from it. To be clear, We don't know if Jamie was involved in drugs, so any talk about his drug use is purely speculation. In addition to the fall, Jamie was concerned about his health because hospital staff thought he might have pneumonia. They wanted him to return to the hospital on Sunday for a chest x-ray. They needed a look at his lungs to determine if it was pneumonia. This prompted Jamie to make a call home to his mom, and she was happy to hear from him but she was understandably concerned about his well-being. Between the fall and possible pneumonia, it was enough to make a mother worry. Tina and Jamie talked about his hospital visit. Tina told him that she was working on Saturday, but she said she could pick Jamie up after work and take him in for the x-ray, and then she would take him to the pharmacy afterward to pick up any prescriptions.
0: Probably about eight eight thirty, and I received a phone call that Friday night from jamie, and he's telling me that he fell down a flight of stairs and he went to the hospital, and they think he might have pneumonia, and he they wanted him to come back on Saturday to take x rays and I said, "Well, do you want me to come and pick you up and take you home and he said no i'm just I'm just staying a couple blocks from the hospital i I can make it okay and I said, okay and um then." That Saturday, I was at work, and he called me, probably at one or two. I, I'm thinking, and he said, "You know, I'm going to go back to the emergency room and, and have my X-rays. Do you want to go with me?" And I said, "Absolutely." And he said, "You know, I might not have um, money for any prescriptions." And I said, "You know, don't don't worry about it. I'll I'll take care of that. You you need your medicine." And he always he always. Called me if he needed anything. Even when I was living in Florida for a short period of time, if he was hungry, he would call me, and I would find him somehow, get him something to eat. I couldn't stand him not having any money. He was working sort of sporadically, like doing side jobs or odd jobs. Right, right. And he had, and he was on food stamps, and you know he, um, you know he was pretty smart on how to to work things out to where you know he survived. Um, he was very street smart. So he called me probably about three o'clock at that time and said, you know, I'm going to go ahead and go to the emergency room. And I said, well, okay, but call me when you get out. So I know what, you know, so I can get you your money for your prescriptions. And I was kind of waiting for him to call me because I got out at five and I was kind of waiting for him to call me back right around that time. So I could, you know, give him his medication, but he never called me. And six o'clock, I called him and left him a message. And I went, you know, I, I don't remember if I went straight to voicemail or, but I remember leaving him a message saying, Hey, I haven't heard from you. You know, let me know what the doctor said. And, you know, if you need some money for some, for some scripts, I'm, I'm off Sunday, I'll come, you know, give it to you. And I never heard from him. And really so, nobody um, heard from him after that, correct? Right. Correct.
1: That was Tina Vaughn, Jamie's mother, explaining how events unfolded that weekend. She left many messages for Jamie asking how he was feeling, asking if he needed her, and asking for a call back. But that call never came. When Tina didn't hear back from Jamie, she didn't give it much thought. It wasn't unusual to go a week or two without hearing from her son. And it wasn't until the second week of July that the family realized that Jamie was missing. It was after Jamie's sister received a message on social media from one of his friends. They were checking in with family to see how Jamie was doing. His sister was puzzled by the message because she hadn't seen or spoken to Jamie in a couple of weeks. So she messaged their mother, and Tina in turn messaged the other kids. Texts flew back and forth, but no one had seen Jamie since Friday, June 28, 2013. So Tina went to the Kalamazoo Police Department to file a missing persons report, and this is where she met Detective Beauchamp. Kalamazoo Police got Jamie entered into the system, and 25-year-old Jamie Vaughn Bryant was officially a missing person. Now, law enforcement in Kalamazoo, they did all the right things. His cell records were pulled, then, they reached out to the hospital for surveillance tapes from the hospital's campus on Saturday, June 29th. Jamie, who is 6 foot 6 inches tall, with a slender build, it's not surprising that he easily stood out on the footage from the hospital. The image of Jamie walking down the hospital hallway by himself is the last time anyone can confirm his location. This is also the last time that we can confirm Jamie was alive. When police analyzed his cell phone records, Jamie's movements after leaving the hospital become clear. They tracked the pings of his phone as it hit and connected with various cell towers. And the pings are moving too fast for him to be on foot, so clearly Jamie is in a vehicle. And he didn't own a car, so it seems that someone picked him up from the hospital that afternoon and that someone was not his mother. The last known location of Jamie's phone was north of Kalamazoo and east of Plainwell, in an area not too far from Crooked Lake. Listeners, I was wondering, who is the last person Jamie spoke with that day? Did police look into who he was in contact with on the 29th? Again, let's hear from Jamie's mom, Tina Vaughn.
0: You know, I think they, I can't remember. I know he pulled the phone records. The detective did, but again, you know, it's been six years and I don't, I don't remember. I I, re, I remember him having the the phone records out with me and he's kind of going over it with me. But I don't, I, I honestly can't remember that. But it does sound like they did their due diligence and did
1: pull his phone records. They did, yes. Good. So not only did the police review video evidence and pull Jamie's cell records, the detective also looked at the people closest to Jamie. He interviewed his friends, people he'd stayed with, people in his band, and it seemed that no one had any information on where he could be, or who could have picked him up from the hospital, or where Jamie went after that. The detective kept running into a series of dead ends as he pursued the location of Jamie Bryant. But one lead did come through a few weeks later. Perhaps calling it a lead is being generous. There was talk that Jamie was at the Electric Forest Music Festival the weekend he disappeared. Now, if the festival sounds familiar, it's because it's been in the news recently. Because someone who was confirmed to be at the festival in 2018, a young man from Oakland County named Kevin Graves, he disappeared from Electric Forest just last summer. 28-year-old Kevin Graves was at the festival with some friends, and he did not make it home. If you're curious about Kevin's case or would like a deeper look, I suggest that you check out episode 166 of The Vanished podcast. The host, Marissa, takes a deep dive into the circumstances surrounding Kevin's case. Now, was Jamie at Electric Forest? Let's go back to Tina.
0: It was a couple months later that they thought he was at this um, at this festival. and But there was really no other recoll- recollection of that other than that, oh, we think he might have been there, but do you know... There, I don't know if there was any confirmation with his friends or anything. It was just kind of speculation. Um, so I might ask my listeners if they attended Electric Forest 2013 to look through their photos, because Jamie... Being so tall would literally stand out in pictures. Yes. Yeah, and, and, you know, he's very thin. Uh, He had a beard, glasses, you know, very, very distinct features. Listeners,
1: it is possible that Jamie was at Electric Forest in 2013, that he went to the festival after he left the hospital, And if you happen to attend the Electric Forest Festival in 2013 and have photos of the event, please pull out those pictures and look through them. See if you can spot Jamie in the crowd. As mentioned previously, he's six foot six inches tall, so he literally stands out. Now, the second half of 2013 was a bit of a blur for Jamie's mother and siblings because all they did was look for Jamie and worry about him. They put up flyers, they granted interviews to local television stations and local news sources, and they knew that someone knew what became of Jamie, but if anyone had information on his disappearance, they weren't talking. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and it is so convenient. Get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. My BetterHelp therapist was extremely helpful as I navigated the illness and death of my father earlier this year. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time, no additional charge. Best of all, it is a truly affordable option. And for Already Gone listeners, you get 10% off your first month with discount code GONE. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com GONE. That's BetterHelp.com GONE. So, who was Jamie Bryant? Jamie Vaughn Bryant was the third of four children born to Tina Vaughn. Jamie's father abandoned the family when Jamie was a toddler, and Tina Vaughn worked hard to pick up the slack and provide a stable, happy life for her children. Jamie was his own person, even at a young age. As he grew up, he became taller than his peers, and soon Tina's little boy towered over nearly everyone. At six foot six with brown hair, blue eyes, and glasses, he was often seen with a beard or a short scruff. As a teenager, Jamie attended Lawrence High School in Lawrence, Michigan, a small community that sits between Kalamazoo and St. Joseph, Michigan, just north of I-94. High school was not to his liking, and he dropped out not long after his sixteenth birthday. Since he wasn't in school, Jamie took part-time work or odd jobs to make ends meet. Eventually, he moved to Kalamazoo, where he lived with friends. And it's in Kalamazoo that he disappeared. Between the age of 18 and his disappearance, Jamie got three tattoos. One of whiskey on his ribcage. He had a tattooed outline of the state of Michigan on his arm and a misfits tattoo on his forearm. The Misfits tattoo went well with his punk rock persona. One of Jamie's gigs was playing drums in a band. And while Jamie didn't have much, he was known to be generous and helped others when he could. His friends and family spoke well of him. It seemed like Jamie Bryant was a genuinely nice person. And in a 2013 interview with local news station WWMT, They interview not only his mother, but friends who are concerned about Jamie's welfare. That interview is available on YouTube, and I will post a link to it on our website. That's www.alreadygonepodcast.com. To assist in finding Jamie or identifying him should the worst happen, both Jamie's mother and brother were asked for DNA swabs which were entered into CODIS. In July of 2015 two full years after Jamie's disappearance, his case was entered into NamUs. If you aren't familiar with NamUs, it's the National Missing and Unidentified Persons Database. This means that if remains are located, they can be matched against his information in the system and potentially used to bring him home. Listeners, I want to go back to that Friday, the day before Jamie disappeared. He ended up at the hospital because he'd fallen down a flight of stairs. And there was some talk that he'd been intoxicated or maybe even under the influence of drugs at the time of the fall. A fall where he not only banged his head, but scuffed up his face. So if you think you may have seen Jamie that last weekend in June, it's likely his face was bruised or scratched. But his mother, Tina, she raised a really good point when we were talking about this that if Jamie fell down a flight of stairs, how did his glasses survive the fall? How did his face get banged up, but his eyeglasses, which he wears all the time, came away unscathed? Now, it may be nothing, but I think it's worth mentioning that his face was injured, but his glasses were not. And as an aside, I'm wondering if Jamie could have received a concussion in the fall, perhaps sustaining some sort of head injury. And I'm speculating here, but if he had a head injury, he could have been confused or disoriented when he left the hospital that afternoon. It could have lessened his ability to perceive danger or recognize a threat. If he did sustain a head injury, it could have prevented him from protecting himself, or it could have negatively influenced his decision-making process. Since Jamie's disappearance in June of 2013... His family holds out hope that Jamie can be located.
0: Um, If anyone has any information about Jamie and with him being at this festival or any information at all, I would really appreciate you calling Detective Rivard and her number is at 269-337-8094. And again, I I would really appreciate it. If you
1: have information about the 2013 disappearance of Jamie Bryant you can call Detective Rivard of the Kalamazoo Police. And again, her number is 269-337-8094. You can make an anonymous tip. The priority for Jamie's family is to bring him home, to finally know his location after years of wondering and waiting. I've put law enforcement contact information in the show notes as well. If you'd like to follow Jamie's case, or if you want access to flyers about his disappearance, visit the Help Us Find Jamie Bryant Facebook page. You do not need a Facebook account to look at this page. Also, if you attended the Electric Forest Music Festival in 2013 and have photos of the event, please take the time to look through them and see if Jamie can be found
0: in your pictures. Nobody deserves this. I don't care what they've gone through. Nobody deserves to be missing from their family and just disappear from everything. I mean, and their families certainly don't deserve that. And if anybody would just have just, there's got to be something out there that somebody knows, you know, just, I just want him home. I just want closure and I want him, I want a place that I can go visit him. I know Jamie's gone, and I know he's in a better place, and he's finally happy. But I just, want, I just want that closure. I just want to have my baby in a place where I can go see him and know that that's where he's at. I don't know how people live with it every day, and I don't know how somebody can live with themselves knowing what happened to him and putting his family through this.
1: Sick of being upsold at gyms.